Dennis Kinlaw was a professor of Old Testament history, theology, and languages. He had the ability to make the Word of God come alive, and we believe wholeheartedly in the power of God's Word to change lives through the Holy Spirit. We hope this message will quicken your interest in God's redemptive story. Our scripture lesson this evening is found in the little letter of Philippians, Paul's letter reading from chapter 2 of the Philippian letter, a very familiar passage that begins with verse 5. You will remember it immediately. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm sure that you're aware that when Paul wrote this little letter, he was in a Roman prison. He was in chains and was facing possible execution. While he was there in prison, a visitor came to see him. His name was Epaphroditus. And he came to him from the Roman colony of Philippi. You will remember that Paul had had some experience there before. And so immediately Paul began to remember his own experiences in the city from which Epaphroditus came. Paul had wanted to go east into Asia and God had stopped him. And when he stopped him, he had a vision of a man in Macedonia calling, saying, come over and help us. And then he moved west, and so the gospel moved west with Paul instead of east. He came to Philippi, and on the Sabbath he wanted to worship, and so he heard that there was a prayer group down on the river bank, and so he went down and found a ladies' prayer meeting, and the lady who was leading it, was named Lydia. That was the beginning of his experience in that great city. You will remember that there were a number who responded to his message. And then a succession of events happened so that certain people in the city were angered enough that he was thrown in jail, he was mercilessly beaten, along with his companion Silas, and they found themselves in the middle of the night, and so they said, the best thing to do is sing and praise God, because when you're in the center of God's will, nothing happens. They cannot be used for his glory. And as they sang, you will remember God responded with an earthquake that set all the prisoners free. And when they found themselves free, the prison keeper, the jailer, knew that his own life was in, in danger, started to kill himself, and uh, Paul said, no, save yourself, because that's not what we're here for. 
And out of that, the church at Philippi developed. Now Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. Epaphroditus has brought to him gifts indicative of the love of those Christian believers in Philippi for him. And so his heart is encouraged and his heart is entendered by their love. And as he begins to recall, he decides he has to write to these people whom he loves so dearly. So out of that experience came the most tender of all of the letters that Paul wrote, and certainly the most personal one. If you will read it carefully, you will notice that he begins by telling them what a joy it is to remember them. He finds great joy in praying for them. He has confidence that what God has started in them, he is going to finish. And he has a great hope that one day God will present them blameless, innocent, and pure before himself at his appearing. Now, after telling them that, he tells them what's happening to him. And he says, yes, I'm in chains, but that's all right. Because they assign Roman guards to me, Roman soldiers. So every guard that they assign, I have an opportunity to witness to him. And then the guards carry the word back to their own and wherever they go. And so the word of Christ is spreading through my being in prison. So he says, I can rejoice in that. Now he says, let me tell you what my concern is for you. He said, I want you as a body of believers to come to the place where you have one mind. And that one mind that I want you to have is the very same mind that was in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but there are many ways of describing what the ideal Christian life is. But I don't know of anything that appeals to me much more than the thought that I could have the very mind which was in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not the first person to be enamored with that. John Wesley was. And John Wesley, on occasion after occasion, said, what it means to be a Christian is simply to have the mind which was in Christ Jesus and to walk as he walked. What a wholesome and what a beautiful way to express what Christ died on the cross to do inside you and me to bring us to the place where we can think the way he thought, and as we think the way he thought, we can make the choices he would make, and we can live the way he wants us to live. Now, uh, what does it really mean for a person like me to have the mind of Christ? Paul says, I can tell you what it meant for Jesus. And we get the passage that we read, the famous kenosis passage, where Jesus the eternal Son of God at the right hand of the Father, decided that he was willing to empty himself of all of that and become one of us in order that we might be in the kind of fellowship with him that God wants us to have with him. And so we get that passage that tells about how he left the right hand of the Father and came to Bethlehem, came to a virgin's womb, and then to Bethlehem's manger and to Nazareth and then ultimately to Galilee and to Jerusalem and to the cross, and how he sacrificed himself for us. Now he says, that's what it meant in him. But he said, let me tell you what it should mean in you. 
It's interesting that uh, there are four points in Paul's sermon here. Two of them come before the hymn about Christ, and two of them come afterwards. The first two are found in verse 3 of that chapter, where he speaks and says, I want you to make my joy complete. I want you to have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And I don't want you to do anything out of, and I will use this translation, out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. But now notice the two negatives. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now those are his first two points. That the person who has the mind of Christ is not under the control of selfish ambition. Now, I was working my way through that and... Uh, I thought, well, I'm clean on that score because when you get as old as I am, that's part of your past. You're not on the rise in your, the arc of your life. You're on the downgrade, and so that's no problem for me. But I had the unfortunate experience of looking it up in the Greek and examining it a little more carefully. I went back and checked out the word which is used there. It's the Greek word, erytheia. It's a fascinating word. It has an interesting history. In the beginning, it was used to which you would give a person, a friend, who would come over and help you with a job all day. And so you reward him. Then it moved from a reward to a wage where uh, you hire somebody to work for you and you say, I'll pay you so much. And so he comes to work for you in order that he can get the wage that you're going to give him. Then it becomes it used for you are willing to hire yourself out for something. It is used for a prostitute's hire. And then it is used for a politician's bribe. And the basic concept in the whole thing is, as it developed, the essence of what is here is, when any circumstance develops where you look at it and you say, well now, what's in that for me? I will respond to that according to how it will advantage me and how it will please me. Now, you don't have to think hard to realize that's the exact reverse of the mind which was in Christ Jesus. Because when Paul speaks, he said, he left heaven, not for what he would gain, but it was out of consideration for you and for me, out of his love for us. He emptied himself of the perquisites of divinity in order that we might be at one with God. So he said, I don't want anything in your life that is based on personal self-interest. Now, then I looked at the second word. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. The NIV says vain conceit. And I thought, well, uh, when you're as old as I am and you've been battered by life as much as I've been, you're not, not too 
not too bothered by, uh, not too troubled by vain conceit. But then I looked up the Greek on that. And the interesting thing is that the word kenodoxia, the kenos means empty, and the doxia has to do with appearances. So he said, don't do anything for appearances' sake. And you know what I thought about? One of the first things I thought about was Peter. You will remember warming himself in the high priest's court. And a little girl looks at him and says, aren't you one of those? And Peter knew instantly that if he was part of that crowd, he was in trouble. So for appearance's sake, he said, oh no, oh no, don't put me in that crowd. Now, uh, I understood, I felt a little of what Paul was talking about. He said, if you're going to have the mind of Christ, you can't uh, let your conduct be determined by those kind of associations or by those kinds of appearances. Because if Jesus had cared about how he appeared, you would have never found him naked, broken, bleeding on an open cross or treated as a But he was willing to go beyond the pale of men's approval that we might be redeemed. So Paul says, I'd like for you to have the mind of Christ, where when you get into a tense situation, your first thought is not, how am I going to look? But your first thought is, What about the other person, and what is his need, and how can I help? So the orientation is not this way toward me, toward self. It is the other way toward others. Now, uh, when I got to that point, I thought, this gets a little personal, doesn't it? But uh, then I went on and looked at the two points that he has in his sermon after that hymn the third and the fourth point, where he speaks in verse 14 and he says, Do all things without complaining. One translation says, Do all things without murmuring. And do all things without arguing. Now, uh, the word which is used there is reflective of what happened to the children of Israel when God delivered them from Egyptian bondage, and they found themselves in the wilderness. And you will remember they were fed by manna, and they were fed by water out of rock, and they were fed by quail that came on the wind. But as they watched that, they said, well, we had some today. You reckon it'll be here tomorrow? And as they got it out of one rock, they said, do you suppose it can be pulled out of another And in insecurity, they said, what if the wind changes and the quail don't come? And they began saying, you know, we had a certain amount of security back in Egypt, but out here we're totally dependent upon this God that we're following. And their insecurities began to get them, and so they began to murmur and to complain. Now, complaining is not an unusual experience, is it? And most of the places where I've lived, it's been our favorite indoor sport, except when we were out of doors. But uh, here is Paul saying, I don't want you complaining or murmuring. Because he said, I want you to be like Christ. Now, uh, we talk sometimes about cross-cultural movement. 
Can you imagine the cross-cultural movement of Christ, the eternal Son of God, moving from the right hand of the Father to the womb of a virgin, or to Nazareth, to a carpenter shop? I talked with some people last night who had been in a portion of the world uh, that's been under great duress in recent years. And uh, they talked about... uh, the problems with their stomachs having trouble absorbing, handling the food that was given, and uh, how unappealing so much of the life was and that was there. Can you imagine the distance that Christ came, and uh, yet uh, when, and when he came, he was rejected, despised, and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as, our, as it were our faces from him, But worse than that, not only did we hide our faces, some of us, but we turned to destroy him, and yet never a whimper and never a complaint. He said, this is the purpose for which I came. My father sent me, and I came to lay down my life for my sheep. So Paul says, I want you to be like Christ. I don't want you complaining, murmuring. And the fourth thing, he says, I don't want you arguing. You know, as I thought about the complaining part, I thought about those first two and felt that I had sort of uh, been able to localize them so my mind could grasp them. The first one, what's in it for me? Second one, how will I look? On the murmuring, complaining part, the thing that came to me was, you know, I notice when I complain and when I don't complain. When I'm getting better than I deserve, you never hear a whimper out of me. It's only when I'm not getting what I think some way or other is my right and my desert that you hear me complaining. But isn't it interesting? Our murmuring and our complaining comes when we say, I deserve better than that. And you will notice the frame of reference there. If Christ had ever asked that question or raised it from that point of view saying, I want what I deserve, there would have been no redemption. But the redemption of the world came because the eternal Son of God asked not for what he deserved, but asked for what we deserved, rather, and was willing to take that upon himself. But now what about the arguing part? How do you pin that down? You know, I thought of uh, Moses when God came to him in that burning bush and said, uh, now I want you to go back to Egypt. And I'm sure that Moses said, now, Lord, you must have forgotten. I'm a refugee, an escapee from Egypt. Last time I was there, they were, they were looking for me to kill me. You don't want me to go back there. And the Lord said, yes, I want you to go back there. He said, well, now, Lord, you know, uh, and as I began to think about it, it is that, uh, yes, Lord, I'm sure you, uh, I'm sure you know what you're doing, but have you considered some of these things? And so we argue with him about what his will is. Can you imagine the argument that the eternal Son of God could have put up with his Father when he said, I want you to leave this place and go down there to that dirty little planet and encompass yourself or Enclose yourself in a woman's womb for nine months and then go through the process of being a, 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 a human baby with all that goes with that, where you have been 
person of supreme power and authority and glory, and now you're going to be one who's totally dependent upon somebody else? Your mind can handle that just as well as mine. But never once did he argue. But he said, if this is my Father's will, I go. Now, Paul spelled it out rather clearly, it seemed to me. It's none of this, uh, what's in it for me? How will I look? I deserve better than that? Or yes, Lord, but. Rather, you have Christ saying, I want to do the will of my Father. And that was his mind. Now, when I got to that point, I thought, uh, that's beautiful, isn't it? That's really lovely. What a wonderful ideal. But, of course, nobody ever got there, did he? And nobody could ever live there if for a moment he did happen to arrive there. Well, uh, as I thought that, I found myself, uh, I kept reading. I got down a little later in that chapter, and to my horror, I found this passage. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All of them are seeking their own interests, not the interests of Christ. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul says, I looked around for someone to send to you, and I couldn't find anybody except Timothy, because all of the rest are seeking the things of themselves, the Greek text says, not the things of Christ. And suddenly I remembered what he concluded those first two points with. He said, let each of you look not to the things of yourselves, but to the things of others. I thought, for heaven's sakes, there was one guy got there. And apparently he stayed there long enough that Paul could take notice of it and depend on it. And so he said, I don't have anybody else to send, but I have Timothy. While I was reading that, I ran across this passage in 1 Corinthians, where Paul was talking about what's lawful and what isn't. And how some people have a conscience on one thing, and some people have a conscience on another. And Paul says, why should I be bound with their conscience? Their conscience is not right. And so he talked about the very question of eating meat. Some people say, the Jews said, you can't eat this. And the Gentiles said, no problem in that. And Paul said, God showed me that all these meats are clean, and so one is as clean as the other. Why do I have to be bound by the other person's conscience? And Paul says, If I partake with thankfulness for anything that is clean before God, why should I be denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So he said, Let me say to you, whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, this is what you want to do. You want to do it for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking the things of myself, is what the Greek says, 
but that of many, so that they may be saved. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I thought, for heaven's sakes. Paul is saying, in that situation, I've operated the way Christ did. And then I noticed the verse with which that paragraph begins. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do not seek the things of yourself, but that of the other. I thought, isn't it interesting? Timothy got there, and Paul got there. I want to tell you the passage about Paul was a shock to me. I'd been reading this thing a whale of a long time. But you know what I'd been sort of brainwashed to remember? I didn't remember these passages. I remember where Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. And now Paul has said, I want you to imitate me because I'm not living under the tyranny of self-interest. Christ has delivered me from that. Now, I must admit, uh, it was almost more of a shock to me to hear Paul say it about himself than it was to hear him say it about Timothy. And I thought, two men got there. How'd they get there? Well, did they get there because they're just better people than we are? You know, the essence of what we're talking about is sin, isn't it? Because if you take that great passage in Isaiah 53... You will find perhaps the best definition of sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've gone after what's of interest to us. And Christ and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the pervertedness, the twistedness of us all. And when he laid it there, that twistedness that causes me to be concerned first about me, he died on that cross to set me free from the tyranny of that all-encompassing self-interest. And I thought, no, if Timothy got there, he didn't get there because he was better than you and me. He got there by means of what David sang to us a few moments ago, embrace the cross. It's in the cross of Christ that there is an atonement and a redemptive power that can set me free from the tyranny of living under that lash. Now, what's in that for me? But I can start free from that and say, Lord, what is your will here? Or I don't have to live under the tyranny of how am I going to look and what's this going to do to my reputation? I can say, Lord, I don't want to be captive to that, and I don't have to be because you died. And I don't have to live under the tyranny of, I deserve better than that. I can say, Lord, you're guiding my life. Because it was Paul who lived, was in a Roman prison in chains, who wrote and said, this is good. I rejoice in it because he's using my chains for his own glory. And so I rejoice in what's happened to me, and I've learned here in prison, I've learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content, no complaints in him, and no argument in him to God. Now, uh, 
You know, if one guy gets there by the blood of Christ, then every person can get there by the blood of Christ. So I thought, well, now, who'd want to live that way? (laughs) And then I thought, is it possible? If it is possible, wouldn't that be the life of all lives? Because do you know the most contaminated I've ever felt? is when something good has come up and I've stuck my own personal interest into it. And when are the moments when we find the greatest fulfillment? Not when we've taken care of ourselves, but when we've cared for somebody else. And it takes the atoning work of Christ to turn a person like you or me inside out to where we can care more about somebody else than we do ourselves. I had a doctor's appointment, and he told me to come at 8 o'clock, and I thought, uh, good, he's a friend of mine, so he's going to get me in before everybody else comes, and I can get on my way with my business. And after I'd been sitting there for an hour and a half, I decided that friendship was not quite as intimate as I had thought it might be. <clears throat> so I... I thought I was going to get right in, and so I never took anything to read. So I looked around for something to read. I found a People's Magazine. Connie Chung was on the cover. It was about uh, women, professional women in the media, particularly news anchors like Connie Chung, Mary Alice Williams, and so forth. And it was about how most of these women at that stage of the game had reached the 38 to 42 age level. And they were aware that the biological clock was winding down on them. And if they were to ever have the experience of having children, they had to move. And so three of those anchor women, nationally known faces, decided to take time out from their careers to have a child. And so each one reported on what it had been like. I'll never forget Mary Alice Williams. When they asked her, she said, I never knew real joy before. And she underlined the word joy. I've never known fulfillment like this. And she underlined the word fulfillment. She said, this is the kind of thing that makes life worthwhile. Now, she knows what the high salaries are. She knows what the national recognition is and all of that. But she said, this experience of stepping out of that life and giving life to somebody else, brought me to where I now know what real joy is and what real fulfillment is. You know, that sounds like God. Because if you could get into the very heart of God, you would find that the Father lives for the Son, and the Son lives for the Father, and the Spirit lives for the Father and the Son, and all three of them live for you and me. And that's the reason we say God is love, because love 
is when you care more about somebody else than you do yourself. So I understood why John Wesley said, ah, this is what salvation is. He saves us from that self-reference and sets us free to where we can give ourselves. And our first thought is not self-interest. Our first thought is others. We can love God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. And mine, who would ever complain Or who would ever not want to be as much like that kind of God as he could get or she could get? I remembered then that word from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, The love of Christ constrains us. We thus judge that if one died, then all died. And we who live should no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us and gave himself for us. That's the purpose of the cross. And you don't see that until you become a Christian. Nobody knows the depth of his self-interest and self-centeredness until he's been a Christian a little while and walked with Christ. Then we find how deep-seated that self-reference is. And then it is that we have the chance to turn to him and say, you forgave my sins. You wrote my name in your book. You've made me now a candidate for heaven. Thank you. You've put a new nature within me. But can you handle that? And he says, yes.